Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is archaeologist Jessica Irwin. Today, Ms. Irwin has just begun a new position as the assistant director for the Center of Digital Antiquity at Arizona State University. But during the past 11 years, Jessica has done archaeological work on both land and sea for historical projects in Florida, South Carolina, Virginia, and Europe for various federal government agencies, private historical preservation foundations, and state universities in Rhode Island and South Carolina. She has done archaeological projects from excavating lands owned by Presidents Washington and Madison to diving and examining underwater shipwrecks to searching for the remains of POW MIAs. Jessica, archaeology is not your typical garden variety occupation. Who or what inspired you to become an archaeologist? I am one of those very strange people who have wanted to know exactly what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. Um, uh, to me, it's always been the combination of adventure and traveling and history, um, and archaeology just felt like the right fit for me, even though it isn't always all of those things. Please tell us, well, please tell us about your background. Where were you born and raised, and where were you educated, Jessica? So I am from California. I was born in Northern California in a little town called Red Bluff, and I spent a lot of my childhood um, in South Lake Tahoe. And then I went to college at San Jose State University, which is in the Bay Area of California. And I went to grad school at the University of Rhode Island. Um, but I have lived, you know, all over the country. So I would say I've, you know, been educated a little bit everywhere. When it comes to archaeology, are there certain subject areas that you specialize in when you do digs and or archaeological dives? Yeah, so I am considered a historic archaeologist, which means that I focus on things that are kind of, you know, Columbus to the end of World War II. Um, and my particular specialty when it comes to underwater archaeology is the archaeology of the transatlantic slave trade. So I have spent a good portion of my career looking at shipwrecks associated with the transatlantic slave trade and trying to figure out ways to identify ships that participated in the transatlantic slave trade in the archaeological record, which is something that is particularly challenging because those ships are kind of amorphous. They are used sometimes for the transatlantic slave trade and sometimes for other purposes. So um, that has been what I've been like really pursuing for the majority of my career. Please tell us about your first archaeological dig. Where was it and what exactly was it you were excavating for? So my very first real archaeological dig was on the island of Nevis, which is in the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis in the Lesser Antilles. And it was recently become more famous because it um, has been featured in Hamilton because President Hamilton um, grew up on the island. And I was working on a site called the Bush Hill Plantation, which is it was a sugar plantation on this island. And really what we were looking for was just the footprint of the, the plantation, its extent, and we were hoping to find all the different kinds of pieces that were involved with sugar milling. This island specifically is really beautiful and tropical, but at one point, the entire island was being used for sugar cultivation except for the very top of the volcano in the middle of the island. And since then, 
every single inch of the island has been overgrown with vines and trees. So recreating what that historic landscape looks like uh, is very challenging. And so that's what we were looking for. You know, where was the main house? Where were the people who were enslaved living? Where were they doing sugar smelting? How are they getting their product, you know, down to the ports? Um, so not, you know, your kind of typical treasure hunt exciting thing that you think of in archaeology, but really important work to get a complete historic narrative of a place. I'm kind of blown away by the fact that you mentioned the island of Nevis because it has a personal connotation for me. One of my mother's ancient ancestors uh, actually uh, landed in the island of Nevis in the year 1662. He was an apprentice to a woman named Elizabeth Dow who lived on the island there. And he was there for some years. And the next thing he was found, he was in the colony of Virginia in 1680. So I'm kind of blown away by the fact that you mentioned the island of Nevis. Uh, please tell us about your first archaeological dive. So the first time that I really dove for archaeology was in on the island of Bermuda. Um, and I was working there with the National Museum of Bermuda. And they have a person who is just in charge of all the shipwrecks that are there. And so the shipwreck that we have been assigned to was this um, really interesting shipwreck that was evacuating people from the uh, Irish potato famine from Ireland to the United States and they shipwrecked there and miraculously everyone who was on the shipwreck survived um, so it was a combination of looking at the shipwreck and understanding what it was doing and why it was there and actually identifying what wreck it was and then also learning about the story of the people because there was this three-year-long legal battle about should the island of Bermuda keep these people who are essentially refugees? Should they send them over to the United States? Should they send them back to Ireland? And who should pay for all of it? So that was kind of my first really foray into that diving. Um, and diving is one of those things that like once you stop, you're just, once you start, you're addicted, you can't stop. So. so before you became an archaeologist, were you already doing scuba diving before that time? Or did you start when you got became an archaeologist? I started in the pursuit of archaeology. I started scuba diving in college with the idea that I was going to use scuba diving as a tool to help me in my research. There's kind of um, a, like a little adage out there that says that it's easier to teach an archaeologist to scuba dive than it is to teach a scuba diver to become an archaeologist. Um, but I have worked with a lot of amazing people who have started out as divers and are really excellent divers. And, do archaeology kind of, you know, avocationally as a hobby. Um, but I use it as a tool and, you know, everything that I've learned in the pursuit of diving is to, to help that kind of research move forward. Jessica, please tell our audience, when it comes to determining potential dig and or dive sites, what tools and resources do you use to determine where to dig and, and or where to dive? Well, each of those processes is totally different. So starting out with where to dive, we use reports from people who are diving so they might see something. We also use a lot of remote sensing tools, so magnetometers, side scan sonars, to look at what might be on the ocean floor and then go and dive and check it out. And depending on what agency or you know um, organization you're working with, that might look like different things. So. If the 
Army Corps of Engineers wants to deepen a harbor, they're going to be looking for shipwrecks and where to dive based on what needs to be protected or moved or mitigated. Whereas there are some people who go out and look specifically for one ship, maybe for their whole career, and use these remote sensing tools to find potential targets and then go dive on those and see what they can find. And it's similar for working on land. You know, you someone might find a site or an artifact and let an archaeologist know, and then we might go and investigate more. There's also amazing remote sensing equipment for terrestrial digs. There's ground penetrating radar, and in a few cases, metal detector. And there's ways to look at hydrology and how you know the land absorbs water, and if that can indicate something. Um, and a lot of times, it's you know looking at old maps or stories, or even satellite images to see you know what kind of shows up. Um, depending on different moisture levels or growth or ruins or overgrowth. So there's a lot of different tools that you can use. Um, and it really kind of starts out with the question that you're asking. If you're looking for something specific, if you're looking for where George Washington grew up, or if you're looking for a specific shipwreck, or if you say, I have this piece of land and I need to figure out what's here before I build a hotel or a highway or you know, a port or a harbor. Do you consider yourself a modern-day Indiana Jones? I No, I don't consider myself a modern-day Indiana Jones. I think that would be a lot more fun and a lot more exciting than what archaeology tends to be like. Um, generally, for every week that an archaeologist spends in the field, we have to spend six to eight weeks in the lab and in the office processing the data that we collect and writing reports about it, make sure that we're, you know, disseminating the information that we find to the public um, and informing the historic record. So while I would love to like wear a fedora and, you know, go explore ancient ruins, a lot of what I end up doing is filling out spreadsheets and taking pictures of artifacts and writing, you know, reports and reading books. So. What was the most dangerous archaeological dive you have ever done? So the most dangerous diving I have done is in South Carolina. Um, we what we do there is called kind of black water diving or you know no visibility diving. So we find a target using a remote sensing and then we investigate it, but you generally have kind of no visibility and a lot of the diving in South Carolina is in the waterways, not in the ocean. And those used to be the mechanism that rice plantations used to transport um, their goods up and down. So there's a lot of barges and shipwrecks there, but there's also alligators and poisonous snakes and giant fish and submerged nets and trees that are down from hurricanes. And it's always no visibility and low light. Um, and it's one of those things that you get used to doing, but is always a, a heightened sense. You know, when you dive in Bermuda, you can see for 100 feet in every direction. Um, but when you dive in a place like South Carolina, if you can see your hands right in front of your face, that's a good visibility day. What causes the water to be so dark in South Carolina? Is it like the the silt, uh, the, the 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 sediment on the on the on the on the waterway bottom? What causes that? Um, it's a combination of a couple things. So the tide differential, the amount of water that comes in at low tide and leaves at high tide is pretty extreme there. So you get a lot of sediment that moves just through the water column. But that the coastal South Carolina is called the low country. And really what it is is swampy, 
boggy water that has a ton of mud and sediment. And there isn't any real land there. There's a few spots in there, you know, sandy islands. But for the most part, just really heavy mud. So when the tide changes like that, it just carries all of the sediment back and forth and just makes the water very Jessica, global warming has caused sea levels to rise and coastlines to alter and or disappear. How much has global warming adversely affected underwater archaeology, if at all? Has it, has it had an adverse effect? It definitely has had an adverse effect in that there is not enough archaeology being done as sites present themselves. So, for example, there is tons of sites that we never knew about that have been hidden in the ice in the Arctic. And as glaciers melt and these sites, you know, show themselves, artifacts and a lot of really interesting and important information is being lost because there's not enough archaeologists to keep up with the rate at which it's melting. Additionally, as sea level rises and storms become stronger and stronger, a lot of coastal sites are eroded away. So that is really, really difficult to mitigate, to keep up with and to just respond to the number of sites that are reported um, and to be able to, you know, go and research them and curate the material that you discover responsibly. There is some hope in that regard, though, because there is a relatively new field of underwater archaeology called submerged paleolandscapes. And a few government agencies and a lot of researchers have spent the past about six years developing methods to look at prehistoric sites that are under the water from the last glacial minimum. So sites that have already experienced this um, before and look at ways to research them and identify them so that maybe some of these sites that are being submerged and are affected by global warming now could be researched in the future using those methods. In what areas are these submerged uh, things that you just mentioned about? Uh, what Any specific spots in the United States or in the world? Um, I mean, anywhere that was exposed at the last glacial um, maximum and glacial minimum. So the entire continental coast, you know, if you look at maps of, you know, how the, or the coastline has fluctuated during different periods, ice age, et cetera, you can see that, you know, say Florida used to be a lot more landmass. So there's areas there along the East Coast in the Gulf of Mexico, not so much on the West Coast because it's the underwater environment kind of drops off pretty dramatically, but there are some spots out there. Um, and so this technology and these research methods, this is where they've been developed. And I think that they'll start to be applied to other places, Alaska, Europe, you know, the Indian Ocean, maybe someday China, we'll see. Jessica, is there an archaeological dig you would give anything to take part in? Something that you could say would be on your professional bucket list when it comes to doing like an archaeological dig or an archaeological dive? Something on your wish list? I would love to do work, oh, sorry, excuse me, in the South Pacific. Um, <clears throat> and the World War II battles that happened at Midway um, and in that island chain that are just so remote and so far out, I would love to be a part of. Um, but generally, that they're so isolated and so remote from regular transportation that it's impossible to get out there or you can get out there once every five years. So that is definitely on my bucket list. 
participate to do some stuff in the South Pacific on kind of the more remote islands. Yeah, I know. I remember, you know, like the Iron Bottom uh, Sound, you know, around Guadalcanal. It's got all those ships in it. I remember, was it Ballard had a book? He showed all the old wrecks, like the Carrier Wasp, even the remnants of JFK's PT-109, you know, can be found somehow, somewhere. I remember Cousteau did a show about just the, the Japanese ships that were sunk by the U.S. Navy at uh, the island of Truk because it was a major anchorage for the Japanese Navy. So that's part of your list, those areas? That is definitely part of my list, um, those areas and more. And I think that as technology really develops to do some more of the deep sea stuff, that there is some really exciting archaeology to be done. Um, out in the Pacific as well, but yeah, you know, there are these huge major World War II battles that happened on these remote islands in the Pacific that are so far away, so far from removed from what people think about day to day, um, and they're just, you know, they're there, they're sitting there, they're waiting for us to find them and to research them, um, and so that is on the top of my bucket list to go, to find a way to get out there someday. When you're, when you're doing a dig on land or, or, or in underwater, when you make a discovery, what are the emotions that you feel when, aha, you found something? You know, you 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 actually you struck pay dirt. You know, you found basically what it is you're looking for. What goes through the mind when you make quote unquote the big discovery? Well, I don't know if there is really big discoveries. You know, when you find the site you're looking for, it's exciting and it's relieving. But also, every time you find something that's that exciting, it brings up more questions than answers. Mm. I think the most exciting discoveries are the things that almost confirm what you were, your hypothesis was or what you were thinking. So maybe you're looking at a site and you're digging and you're thinking, I think this site dates to such and such a day. And then you find a coin that dates to that time period or a button that dates to that time period or even a piece of ceramic or pottery that dates to that time period that kind of confirms your theory, even though it's like a small, tiny thing that might seem insignificant, it can actually be the most important artifact on a site. Um, and then there's a special kind of excitement when you are looking at remote sensing equipment, like a side scan sonar, and you're looking for a shipwreck, and then it just appears on your sonar. And when you know what you're looking for, either you know the shape of the shipwreck or the, what the shadow that it casts, is going to look like and you see it and you're like there it is like we know where to go um it's just it's excitement and relief but it's also that big breath in before you take the next step of like really getting down into the nitty-gritty of doing the work now conversely have you ever done a dig made a discovery on a land dig or an underwater dig where you found something and it made you have to reevaluate what everyone had a preconceived notion of what the site was. I mean, did it had to alter your perception of the site? In other words, a new discovery that, wow, it changed how you interpreted a thing. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, absolutely. I think that happens more often than finding something that confirms your suspicions. Um, a good example is the site, when I was working at James Madison's Montpelier, we had been working on excavating quarters for the enslaved individuals who are working in the mansion. And these quarters are really relatively close to the mansion itself. Um, and for the longest time, they had said, oh, and there's a kitchen here, and there's a kitchen here, and there's a kitchen here. And so, you know, we're looking for it. 
and it's not we're not finding it and it turns out that that kitchen structure was actually on the other side of the mansion and what had been marked there was a smokehouse and then they said oh you know another 200 meters away there's going to be some stable facilities and things associated with that well 200 meters is actually more like 200 feet it was right there really close and so i think that more often than not you find evidence that completely derails your initial assumption of what you were going to find and i think that's sometimes more exciting though can be very frustrating depending on how far along you're in your research um there's also a joke in archaeology that you find the most exciting thing on the last day of your dig so that you know you have to come back the next season or the next year to keep going Jessica, you have submitted many papers on your discoveries. Have you ever contemplated writing a book about your adventures? <clears throat> um, I would love to turn my work about the transatlantic slave trade into a book. Um, I haven't considered writing a book kind of like a memoir about me. I think there's a lot of people who kind of do what I do and we all talk to each other. And so, you know, I don't know how much I'm not as exciting as some of the big explorers. But I think there's a lot of information out there that people, you know, don't necessarily think about when they think about history that I would love to share with them. Um, and that's part of my work now with digital antiquity is making archaeological data and archaeological reports and information more accessible. Because part of the promise that we make as archaeologists is that we're preserving and researching the history um, of where we are for everybody, not to just sit on a shelf somewhere that no one ever sees or reads about or hears about or that contributes to our overall historic knowledge. How can average citizens help you and your archaeological colleagues in the quest to discover and preserve the world's historical treasures? Well, I think the first thing to understand for most people is that when archaeologists look for something, they don't do it with the intention of keeping anything for themselves. You know, we look for things for the information and the data, and that is the most important thing. An object is really great, but if we don't see it in context of the site where it was found or the depth of the dirt or in association with the other things around it, all it is is a thing. And it's more important that the data and the information around in the context it was found is the most important thing. Um, Anybody can, you know, contribute to the historic record, and I think that supporting archaeologists, asking them questions, visiting museums and archaeological sites, um, and reporting archaeological sites when you found them to your local state archaeologist or local university is such a huge help. Um, and when you do that, archaeologists will keep you involved. You know, if you find a site and you report it or you share it, archaeologists aren't going to just take it from you. Like they're going to keep you involved. They're going to keep you updated. They're going to invite you to come and excavate with them. Um, they'll credit you in their report. So, you know, if you see something, share it with us, we'll share with you. And just remember that it's not the, the item that's important. It's the site as a whole. Are treasure hunters a problem for under underwater archaeologists or can they be a help when it comes to locating vessel uh, 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 shipwrecks? It depends on the treasure hunter. Um, generally, treasure hunters can be a huge problem for archaeologists, not because they don't care about history, but because their methods are destructive. A lot of treasure hunters 
will convince themselves that the shipwreck that they found is a Spanish treasure galleon um, or has some amazing thing that's going to make them very wealthy on it. And in 99.9% of the cases, it's just not true. And so what they'll do is they'll dynamite a site or they'll blow a giant hole in it looking for this this treasure. Um, and that does a lot of things. It damages reefs in you know, fragile ecosystems. It blows apart the hole or the information that might help us have named that ship. And if you look through the historic record, there wasn't that many Spanish treasure galleons that actually sank. Um, so, you know, there's not a million out there floating around. Mm. So treasure hunters can be really good allies though, because a lot of times there are people who are from a specific area who have been diving that area, boating in that area for a long time, and there are wealth of information. And so, you know, building trust between archaeologists and people who are treasure hunters can be really helpful. I worked with some really great folks in South Carolina who were from South Carolina. That's what they did all their life. And really what they wanted was to just really be a part of the discovery and the research. And we're happy to share once they have, we could build that relationship of trust that like they would get to be a part of it. So they can be a helper or hindrance. It depends on the treasure hunter, but I would generally prefer people who blow holes through shipwrecks. You know, yeah. shipwrecks are happy where they're at. They've been sitting there for hundreds of years. They're not going anywhere, you know, so give it time, do it right. Don't, you know, don't blow it up in the pursuit of something that probably isn't there. That's how I feel. What is the deepest dive you've ever engaged in when doing an underwater archaeological project? Your deepest dive? I think so. My deepest dive is about 120 feet. Um, all of my work has been on scuba. Um, a lot of my colleagues use rebreathers, which can allow you to go much, much deeper. Um, and there's a few archaeologists out there, you know, who do tech diving and mixed gas. They're the ones who dive with all the canisters or deep into caves. Um, I, the nature of my work keeps me in the Atlantic, so I'm not doing any of that really crazy stuff, but I appreciate those folks who are. So you never, I remember watching those things like Peter Gimbel diving down to Andrea and Doria to get the safe sound. They had to do the decompression chamber. So you've never gone that deep where you had to go to a decompression chamber, correct? No, I have not done um, that kind of intensive decompression diving. Um, and, you know, that kind of diving is one of the things that underwater archaeologists do is if we're going to, remove something from the shipwreck. We want to make sure that we have the ability to conserve it right away and to keep the item in perpetuity to make sure it's preserved forever because the second it hits the air, it's going to start you know, falling apart. So those kind of dives are months and months of planning and tons of funding and fundraising and research of where it's going to go. Um, and so my, my work has not been that intensive because I, you know, I'm looking at like big picture structural stuff. I wouldn't be opposed to doing one of those dives if the opportunity presented itself, but it's not something we've been actively seeking out. Jessica, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. And if you ever do write a book about your magnificent experiences, please let me know because I'd love to have you on again where you can talk about your book, okay? It's a great honor and a privilege. I've never interviewed an archaeologist before, so I, I, just listening to your, your experiences was an incredibly educational experience, and I hope it inspires 
one of our listeners to take up archaeology themselves. And I wish you the best of luck and please be safe. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing author Russell Nohelty. Thank you and good night.